details in a few minutes. But we're in Mark chapter 9, and we're starting in verse 30. It says, And from there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and Jesus was unwilling for anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples. Remember, we've talked about the fact that the focus of his ministry has changed from speaking to the multitudes to teaching the disciples and equipping them for the time when he will rise and be gone and they're going to take over the church. So he's teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they didn't understand this statement And they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when Jesus was in the house, he began to question them. "Uh, What were you guys talking about on the way here? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. And sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said to them, Listen, guys, if anyone wants to be first... He shall be last of all and servant of all. And taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive only me, but him who sent me. God, this morning in your word, we are asking that you would instruct us. I ask that you would anoint this time in your word by your Holy Spirit that you, God, would have complete control of my thoughts and the things that come from my mouth and that you would cause these sounds and these syllables to be life-transforming agents in the hearts of men and women. We understand that the message of your word this morning is tantamount. It is extremely important and that you want us to get it. And so, God, you've got to teach us by your Spirit. Come and instruct us, make us attentive, make us alert, make us aware, make us hungry for your word and the truth. And God, make us quick to change. We reject that common saying that Christians are so willing to change when they're young, but once they're old and set in their ways, gosh, it's just really hard. God, we reject that in the name of Jesus. And we submit our hearts and ourselves to you. And we say, you are our maker. You are our former. Let our hearts be as clay in your hands now. Have your way with them. Have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, last week, or not last week, when I was here the week before, we were talking about in Mark when Jesus took Peter and James and John up on the mountaintop and they had a mountaintop experience. But following every mountaintop is a... And they came into the valley and they encountered trials and tribulations and doubt and questions and arguments and a lack of faith and an inability to meet the needs and the value. Uh, in the valley, sorry. And uh, thankfully, Jesus was easily able to handle the needs there in the valley, and he told them, you guys, your faith is weak right now, so you weren't able to deal with this demonic gig here, this kid that was possessed by a demon. And had you been praying and fasting, you would have been spiritually ready to meet the need. And now Jesus moves on with his boys, and he tells them once again very clearly. You'll remember he had told them up in Caesarea Philippi about the coming of the cross and the resurrection. Now he's telling them very clearly again. We saw in verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He will be killed, but after he is killed on the third day, he will rise again. And so they have this discussion amongst themselves. The other gospel accounts let us know that it wasn't a mere discussion. It was an argument. They're arguing with one another now after Jesus tells them about the cross. Who is the greatest? And there was a sense within them that this was a wrong discussion, a wrong argument. Because Jesus comes knowing all things, knowing their hearts, knowing the conversation. And he says, "Uh, so boys, uh, what were you talking about on the way here? Oh, nothing, Lord, nothing. What do you mean? The Lord knew exactly what was going on. And so he just gave him a very simple lesson. There in verse 35, he sat down and he said, if anyone wants to be first, and they all wanted to be first, he shall be last of all and the servant of all. And so at this moment, Jesus imparts to the boys a new standard of greatness. He gives them, in the idea of servanthood, a new standard of greatness. This is a message that is taught throughout the Bible. We see it emerge from the pages of Scripture over and over again. 
And this idea of servanthood is a kingdom value. That is to say, it is a value of the kingdom of God. We live in a society that is becoming increasingly concerned about values. We just talked about a value with Kathy here about Christian education. I just sat down when I was in France and met with some business leaders, and they wanted to start a uh, surf clothing company that was value-driven, you know, with uh, biblical values to counteract the other clothing manufacturers and popular products that are also value-driven, but another set of values. But nevertheless, we live in a world that is concerned with values. People are choosing their values. They are defining their values as never before. And people are polarized in their values as never before in modern history. And so Jesus gives to us here a kingdom value, that of servanthood. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last and the servant of all. Now, nothing can be more contrary to our sinful nature than this teaching. That if we want to be the greatest, we've got to make ourselves the least. We've got to serve everybody. That just grades against our flesh. Even as we just begin to talk about it, our flesh knows that it hates it. And it's evidenced by the fact that it's a difficult lesson uh, we see in the Scriptures because Jesus had to teach this to the boys over and over again. Over and over again, he gives them the exact same lesson. We're going to look at two other times. Turn just to the next chapter, Mark chapter 10. Just a chapter later, he's got to tell them the same thing. Mark chapter 10, starting verse 33. Jesus was saying to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is going to be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. He tells them again about the cross and the resurrection, this time with a little more detail. And now look at James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, as they're known. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want for you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Very bold, huh? That's why they're called the sons of thunder. Lord, uh, we want you to do whatever we ask you to do. And Jesus says to them very graciously, "Uh, well, what do you want me to do for you, boys? And they said to him, grant that we may sit in your glory on your right and on your left. Jesus, we want to be leaders, but not just any old leaders. We want to be the leaders. We want to be in your right and on your left when you come into your kingdom. We want to be your right and left-hand men. Make us great leaders in your kingdom, Jesus. Whatever we ask, you got to do it. And the Lord responds and says in verse 38, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized in the baptism with which I am baptized? He was speaking there about his suffering and about the cross. And they say in verse 39, they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said, oh man, the cup that I drink you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. In other words, he told a little prophecy here. We know that James would become the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred. He would be killed by a sword, and we know that John would die a lonely death and condemnation. And so he says, well, you guys will suffer. You will go through that. And then in verse 40, but to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. In other words, Jesus tells us here that God's leaders are sovereignly chosen. Did you catch that? I can't just grant that because you guys asked that. It's for those whom it has been re- prepared. God chooses his leaders. But if you want a lesson about leadership, I'll give you one. And so he tells them in verse 41. Or they say, in hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. They were bummed out that they wanted to be those guys. And calling them to himself, Jesus said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, even I, he says, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just a chapter later, he's got to give him the same lesson. 
And now we're going to move ahead to Luke 22, to the Last Supper. Nothing new here. Same lesson, but for a third time. Luke 22. Here they are at the Last Supper. And Jesus is instituting communion. An incredible moment. We pick it up in verse 20 of Luke 22. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. Speaking of Judas. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by, by whom he is betrayed. He tells them again about the cross. Verse 23. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who is going to do this thing. And then there also arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them again, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. Not so with you. But let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servants. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? And yet I am among you as one who serves. Three times we see that Jesus gives them this kingdom value, that he who is to be greatest shall be last and shall be the servant of all. And I want you to notice that every time he gives them this lesson, there was a very specific context. Did you catch it? It was pretty obvious. What was it? Right after he tells them about the cross. Every time he tells them about the cross, I am going to be killed. The Messiah the Savior, the Deliverer of Israel, your leader. I am going to be delivered up to the hands of the Gentiles. I am going to be killed. Each time he talks about the cross, they begin to argue which one of them is the best. That is sick. Do you see the selfishness of man? None of us would have done anything different, by the way. But Jesus said, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be taken out of the way. And the first thing they begin to do is say, all right, well, then which one of us is going to be the leader? Jesus is going to be killed. We don't understand it all, but there's going to have to be a new leader. So who is it going to be? They were seeing the cross as something for their own selfish gain. We often do the same in our own Christianity. But the mindset here is, what's in it for me? You understand? What's in it for me? Jesus is going to the cross. What's in it for me? Who among us is the greatest? We're going to need a, a new leader. Who might it be? Well, obviously, the new leader is going to be the greatest one. Well, how do we know? Here's 12 of us. We've all been with Jesus the same amount of time. How can we determine who is the greatest and then who will be the leader? And if we were looking at it through worldly eyes, as no doubt they were, we might begin to think, well, the greatest is the one among us with the most money with the most financial influence. And so that would have been Matthew, no doubt. Matthew would have been saying, oh, that's me. I'm the tax gatherer here. I'm the greatest. Well, the world would also say that the greatest is the one with the most dominant personality. That would have been James and John. If it was a dominant personality thing, the one who could assert authority and who had the strongest personality, for sure it was James and John. But that's a worldly concept. No, it's the one who is the most political. He's got the most political zeal and the most political mind and he could just kind of fit it all together politically. That would have been Simon the Zealot, no doubt. No, it's the one who is most personable. The one who's most gregarious. And that would have been a tie between Andrew and Peter. Peter, of course, had a tremendous personality, but Andrew was the one that was always meeting people and bringing people to Jesus. And so if it was the most personal bull, maybe it was Andrew. If it was the most ambitious, though, it would have been Peter for sure. But none of those things are kingdom values. And those are probably the nature of the things that they were arguing. But those are human standards of greatness. The leaders in the world are chosen according to those values. But not so in the kingdom of God. We're given a new standard. The greatest shall be the last and the leader shall be the servant of all. 
The world has taught us since an early age, at least here in America. It's different in other cultures. But in America, we've learned from an early age to promote self. And yet the Bible says explicitly, deny self. Jesus said there in Caesarea Philippi, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and follow after me. Now, to the unsaved, to the natural man, this doesn't make any sense at all. That our religion means denying self? That's contrary to everything that we've ever learned. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, tell us that the natural man would not understand this. Paul writes, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned. We can't expect the world to grab onto what Jesus is saying here. Don't expect that of the world. But it must be expected of Christians, even though we in our daily walk will struggle with it, such as Paul struggled with the flesh. Romans chapter 7, 18 and 19. Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh or sinful nature. For the willing is present in me, I know what's right, and I want to do what's right, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. And this is a situation that I so often find myself in, in ministry and in life. I understand the kingdom values. And there is not one that is imparted more times or is of more import than this one of servanthood. I understand it. I can intellectually ascribe to it. I can even grab onto it with my redeemed heart. And yet everything in my flesh grades against it. And it's so easy for me to put on a mask of ministry, a mask of servanthood, and behind it be concerned about my reputation, my name, my fame, and my kingdom. That's what God has been teaching me this week. Great, you do a lot of ministry. It's great. It's wonderful. It's cool. I could do a lot more. I could do what I do through you through a donkey. Don't get too excited. But, Britt, I've noticed as of late that you're concerned with your kingdom sometimes. You want to build some sort of thing for yourself, for your name. It's not about money for you, but it certainly is about reputation, isn't it, Britt? That's what the Lord's been speaking to me. And so he's reminded me this week, Britt, you want to be great in the kingdom. You've got to be last. You've got to make yourself the servant of all. J. Oswald Sanders has a tremendous book entitled Spiritual Leadership, and he says in it, Jesus' teaching on servanthood was not intended merely to inspire good behavior. Jesus wanted to impart the spirit of servanthood, the sense of personal commitment and identity that he expressed when he said, I am among you as he who serves. Mere acts of service could be performed with motives far from spiritual. So we learn at the outset that it's not just about an outward doing. Anybody could serve. Anybody could do things for others and serve in church and serve outside of church. Anybody could do that, but with wrong motives. And the Lord looks upon the heart, doesn't he? And man, sometimes our heart is so desperately wicked and full of deceit. For me, I can't even discern my own motives sometimes. I'm going to serve somebody, and I think, I'm going to do this because of the Lord. And then I find out, no, I'm doing this so they'll think that I'm so spiritual. No, I'm doing it for the Lord. No, I want them to think I'm great. No, it's for the Lord. I'm like schizophrenic spiritually. (laughs) At that time, and I've told you guys this before, and I'll just tell you again. At that moment, I just pray, Lord, you know my heart and my motives. Thank you that you saved me and you want to use me still. Thank you that you've, good, you've prepared good works that I should walk in them. Purify my heart and my motives, and I'm just going to do this and leave the rest to you. God honors that kind of prayer. So it's not about just doing good works in servanthood, but it's about being transformed into the image of Christ. Two basic ways that we are transformed into the image of Christ. The first one we've spoken of frequently in Romans 12 too. Be ye therefore transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our mind is infiltrated, it's filled with, it's overflowing with images and ideas, philosophies and ideologies from the world. How do we counteract those and be transformed into the image of Christ? Through the Word of God in us. The more of the Word we take in, the more that the Spirit is able to transform. The second way is a little more practical and hands-on perhaps, and that's being imitators of God. Ephesians 5 and 1, 2. uh, 5, 1 and 2 tells us to be imitators, therefore, of God. In other words, those things that God does, that Jesus would do, do those. And just do them out of obedience. And I have found that when I'm just obedient to the Lord, He does the transforming. You understand? If you wait to start serving the Lord until you've got your whole gig together, you will never serve the Lord. The rapture of the church will be happen. We'll be out of here and, oh, well, you missed it. You can't wait. You just got to serve the Lord and trust Him to do the transforming. You understand what I'm saying? And so we're transformed by the Word and by doing, by imitating Christ. And the paramount thing that Christ has done is given Himself up for others. That's the point of the Incarnation. That's the point of the cross. He was giving himself for others. There's a poem or a a writing or a little thing I found in a book. I don't know who it's written by. It says this. Because we children of Adam want to be great, he became small. Because we will not stoop, he humbled himself. Because we want to rule, he came to serve. And so Jesus has exemplified for us this kingdom value and this standard for greatness. And one thing that ought to motivate us in serving others is exactly the way that Jesus did it as our example. During the Last Supper, we realize that the disciples were there gathered with Jesus around the table, and all of them had dirty feet. You understand that in that day, the streets weren't paved and they had sandals and stuff wasn't as sanitary as it is today's today. And it was customary when they went into a home and especially if they were going to dine, that the lowest servant would wash your feet before you came in. So the disciples at the Last Supper are gathered in the upper room. They're having the Passover meal and they haven't washed their feet. There was no servant, you know, they just rented the space for the night. And if they were going to wash their feet, it would mean that one of them would have to humble themselves, take the place of the lowest slave, and wash the other's feet. And none of these guys were about to do that. That very night, they would argue about who was greatest, not exemplify who was least. And so we're told in John chapter 13 that Jesus girded up himself with a towel. And he knelt down and he began to wash the feet of the disciples. Can you imagine being humbled in that way? The God of the universe washing your filthy feet. And the Lord took the place of the lowest servant. He washed the dirty feet of the disciples. And then he said to them afterwards in John 12, 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then... Your Lord and teacher washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did. Jesus gave us an example of serving one another. It's taking the place of the lowest slave in the household. It might not be washing the feet physically, but it's things that are on that level, you know what I mean. And when he says there, I gave you an example, it's the Greek word for pattern. I gave you a pattern. When I was growing up, my mom was always sewing. When my parents started Channel Island surfboards, my dad would make the surfboards in the back and my mom would sew all the clothing in the front. And so all the time as a kid, there was always patterns around the house. I remember that. Always patterns. And they were always pinned to layers of material. And she would pin the pattern there and she would cut it out. And pretty soon there was something wonderful that she made. But she always used a pattern. The pattern guided her. The pattern enabled her to make it. The pattern got her to the finished product. Jesus says, I have given you a pattern that you should follow by washing your feet. There's only two times in the New Testament that we are told the Lord gives us a pattern. 
It is there with servanthood, and it is in the book of 1 Peter where Peter says, Jesus gave us an example or pattern of suffering. Now, that's not your normal American Christianity. Suffering and servanthood. But that's biblical Christianity. Those are the only two patterns that we have explicitly in the New Testament are of servanthood and suffering from the Lord. Let's develop this further. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're just going to read several verses here. It doesn't take much comment. It's very self-explanatory. Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. Paul writing, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, is there, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also... God also highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those who are in heaven and those who are on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and complaining, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Did you catch Paul's lesson there? Jesus humbled himself. The God of the universe humbled himself to the point of draping himself in humanity, and dying upon a cross. And as, an ex- as a, a result of him humbling himself, God exalted him. There is a kingdom value which is inescapable. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the proper time. We see it in James, we see it in Peter, and in elsewhere. And it was at the humiliation of the cross that afterwards Jesus is exalted to the highest place. That is a kingdom principle that spills down to our lives. When we humble ourselves, when we take on the form of the least and the servant of the many, then God exalts us in his kingdom for his glory. Notice there, it was to the glory of God the Father in verse 11. And so Paul tells us in verse 12 to work these things out to wrestle through these things in our salvation, not earning our salvation, but living out our salvation. And he has to say to us in verse 14, do all things without grumbling and complaining, because when we take this lowest place, sometimes we are tempted to grumble and complain. Lord, nobody recognized me. Nobody cares about me. Nobody appreciates me. Nobody's serving me. I'm serving everybody else. I'm pouring myself out here. I'm giving and I'm doing. I don't get a thanks. I don't get a pat on the back. I don't get a no. I don't get a card. I don't get anything. Nobody's doing anything for me. I'm doing everything for everybody. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. How often that verse needs to come to mind. Uh, Just the other day, I was in France and I called Pastor G. And I was grumbling and complaining. I went over there for this conference and the trip was long and the accommodations were so-so and the food was so French and 
this and that and the others, and I didn't know anybody, and I called Pastor G, and I was just crying in his ear, you know, and I called my wife and cried in her ear. I, I, I had to make double calls to get enough sympathy. Oh, here I am, and I want to be over there, and I miss my family, I miss my church, this and that. <laughs> and uh, Pastor G, at the end of it, he just prayed for me. My wife did exactly what she should do, you know. My wife was my wife. Oh, baby, just wait till you get home. I'll serve you when you get home. But Pastor G, gentleman that he is, he said, let me pray for you. And as he prayed for me, it was just like darts in my corazón. It's like darts in my heart, you know. He's so humble about it. But, oh, Lord, though Brit is only joking about being in shambles and being sad about where he's at, God, we know that you are faithful and he is your servant and your slave. And God, just humble him to use him over there. And it was like... (laughs) And I hung up the phone and this verse came to mind. Do all things without grumbling and complaining, Brit, you little sniveling, whining worm. And so God began to bless the trip. You know, he adjusted my attitude, and it was wonderful. It was a leadership conference for Christian Surfers International. And there ended up being there 180 leaders from 28 different countries. It was phenomenal. It was unbelievable to be gathered there with the nations. And they all brought their flags, you know. And they were wearing their flags like a cape and they'd drape them over their seat and they'd carry them with their Bible. And there was all this national zeal coupled with absolute unity, you know, and a one-heartedness. And we were singing songs in Japanese and in Spanish and in Portuguese and in French. And it was just wonderful worshiping in different languages and, and being with all those people from 28 different countries. But we were so different. Not only were we different in culture, We were different in doctrine, so many of us. You know, there was a lot of doctrinal variances in that group. We were different in practice. Church and ministry didn't look the same for all of us. There were some profound differences. We were different in uh, Bible knowledge. There were those who had been to seminary and then some and had master's degrees and so on and so forth. And there were others from nations where, man, they, they hardly have any of the Bible. And they've been saved, but they've never been taught in it. And so there was a vast difference in who we are. And I noticed over the time there that there was only one thing that we all had in common other than Christ Jesus. Everybody there was a servant. Everybody was a servant. And so it's almost like utopia, you know. Everyone there is running around serving one another. And when something needs to be done, 50 people snap to do it. And they're trying to just out love each other. Oh, no, man, nothing but love, it says in Romans 8. And it's just beautiful. It's the way that the body ought to look. But there's a reason why these leaders were all servants. And it's because they're leaders. That is to say, you can't be a leader in God's kingdom without being a servant. You cannot be a leader in God's kingdom without being a servant. You might be a servant and not be a leader, but you can't be a leader and not be a servant. And so because it was 180 leaders from the world gathered there, there was a tremendous amount of servanthood in our midst. It's common amongst the leaders in the kingdom of God. And if you think about it, it's common in the Bible. All the great leaders of the Bible were servants before they were leaders. Think about Joshua. Joshua served Moses faithfully before he led the children of Israel across the Jordan. Moses was not a servant. He was a favored one in Pharaoh's house. And so God had to remove him from Pharaoh's house, take him into the desert, and let him serve the sheep for 40 years. God had to make him a servant before he made him a leader. Joshua served Mo. Mo served the sheep. Elisha. Elisha faithfully served Elijah before he received the double portion of anointing. Joseph, who became second greatest in the kingdom of Egypt, was a servant to whomever. You understand that he was a servant to Potiphar and a faithful one, and then when he was in prison, he was a servant there, and so God exalted him to a high place in the kingdom. David. David was anointed king at a young age, and yet had to serve under the tyrant king Saul for some years. He had to learn to be a servant in tough circumstances before he could be the leader of the nation. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah, 
who led Israel in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem after they had been down for some hundred years. He was the cupbearer, the servant of the king, before he was the leader of the nation. I want you to notice something about servanthood in these lives and in contemporary lives. Being a servant always places a smack dab in the will of God. You understand what I'm saying? So often people ask me, how do I know God's will? And I was asked that question repeatedly this week, ministering to um, those leaders over there in France. All the time they come to me and say, man, I'm thinking about this or that. How do I discern God's will? Sometimes God will give you a clear vision, a clear insight. Other times he doesn't. He never has for me given me a clear vision. He's never given me clear insight. He's never said, well, you're going to start a Bible study in Carpinteria for a few kids from Tar Pits, and then you're, do the, you're going to do the college ministry of Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara for seven years, and then you're going to start this new church in Carp, and he never showed me any of that. He told me nothing except for to serve him. And all he gave me was opportunities. And it says in Ephesians 2.10, You are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Understand that? The good works that God has prepared for each one of you beforehand is sort of like a course laid out for your life. And when you discern the opportunities that God brings you your way, and you're faithful to walk in them, you will find yourself inevitably in the middle of the will of God. He prepared good works beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should navigate by them, so to speak. And so I have found, and and the Bible shows us, that we get smack dab in the middle of God's will through opportunities and through being faithful with them. Jesus said, if you're faithful with a little, you'll be entrusted with more, Matthew 25, 23. The other way that we find ourselves in the midst of the will of God is through obedience. You understand, amen, you understand? I don't have to preach on it. If we're not being obedient, we all sin every day in numerous ways. But I mean, the overarching uh, uh, theme of our life is if it isn't obedience and following Christ, we'll never find ourselves in his will. Have a couple kids, you'll see how that works. The second thing I want you to notice as we mentioned those men is that they served people and that was serving God. They served people, and that is how they served the Lord. The who we serve is God. The how we serve is people. See how that puts a little humbling factor in it? Because what Christian wouldn't say, yeah, I want to serve God. He's a great and almighty God. And as soon as you say that, then God will say, okay, then go serve this person with that need. Wait a minute, God. I don't want to serve them. I want to serve you. You're wonderful. You're beautiful. You're great. They're not. I want to serve you then serve them. The way that we serve God is by serving others. And that's illustrated in our text back in Mark 9, if you want to flip there quickly. In Mark 9, 36. And Jesus took the child in his arms, and then he said to them in verse 37, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives the Father. Whoever receives a child like this. He took up a little kid. And remember the context here. He's talking about servanthood. He said, if you receive one like this. In this culture, the children weren't necessarily highly esteemed as ones to be served. The children serve the adults. Oh, it's like our culture. But he said, if you serve one like this. And I think it was a picture of the lowliest in society. If you're willing to serve anybody those who have no esteem, no reputation, if you're willing to serve anybody, then you serve me, and henceforth you you serve the Father. It's given to us explicitly in Hebrews 6.10. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, on the fact of serving God by serving people. Hebrews 6.10. It says, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work. Remember that when you're feeling unappreciated, forgotten. God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name 
in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. That word minister means to serve. That is, when we say someone's a minister, we say they're a servant. He says, God is not going to forget how you brought, how you showed love toward his name and ministering to the needs of the saints. In other words, when you met the needs of the people, you did it for the glory of God, for and unto him. It's given to us again in John chapter 21 when he restores Peter. Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Peter, if you love me, then tend my lambs. Peter, if you love me, take care of my people. You see, servanthood is an expression of love toward God. It is an act of worship unto the living God when we serve those around us. Galatians 5.13 says something similar. It says, uh, For you are all called into freedom, but do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but rather through love serve one another. Everybody always talks about being free in Christ. It means that we are free to serve one another. Free of reputation free of the desire of our own kingdom and our own glory. As I was preparing the sermon, it was on the airplane yesterday on the way home from France. And God is just faithful whenever you study the word to give you opportunities to live the word, amen? And so you know how after the meal on an airplane, there's always the bathroom rush? You know that one? It's after they come and they collect the trays and everybody has to go to the bathroom. And so I was in the midst of the bathroom rush and I go to the back of the plane and there's just a million people waiting for the bathroom there. And I was in line and I'm waiting behind people and came walking up after me in line this precious, precious little old lady. I love little old ladies. I love the ones that we have here. I love you wherever you are. I love you. Little older ladies, and she just came just wobbling down the down the uh, uh, the aisle there, just wobbling. And she came, and it was all she could do to stand there. She couldn't stand there, so she kind of sat on the side of somebody's seat, and she was behind me in line. And immediately, in my carnal mind, I begin to think, "All right, here's the deal. Uh, gosh, I it'd be very uh, servanthood like of me to let her go before me in the bathroom." But I've been waiting for some time. I've got to go really bad. And here's what I know. When I go in there, I'm going to be in there for 12 seconds max. I'm going to go in, do my thing, and I'm out. I'll skip. I mean, I'm just, bam, I'm going to be in there for a mere moment. But if this woman goes in, I just discerned by the way she came down the aisle that she may be in there for some time with all respect. And so immediately knowing that the right thing to do was to obviously let her use it before me. That's just common God sense. My redeemed man was saying, duh. But my flesh was rationalizing. Oh, no, Brit. Oh, no, Brit. You could do this so quick, it won't even matter. It will not matter a bit. You could be in and you could be out. And God spoke to my heart. Brit, it's not the practicalities of it. It is the principle of it, my son. It is not the practicalities of it. It is the principle. Yes, you could be in and out, but it is the kingdom value of esteeming others is more important than yourself. Son, you step aside and you hold the door for her as she goes in and you wait. That's how God develops in us Christ-likeness, transforms us when we are obedient to those things. You see, it was just a small thing. It was no big deal. It was a couple minutes in the restroom. It was no big deal. But God taught me through it. God trained me and God transformed me. And then he also spoke to me uh, because she was in the restroom and I'm thinking now and I'm kind of conversating with God. Okay, God, she's in there and I'm well done, good and faithful servant. Man, I let her go first and I'm feeling good about myself and so on and so forth. And gosh, but shouldn't I share the gospel with her now? I mean, she doesn't know I'm a Christian. I let her go in, and now it's for nothing unless I share the gospel. Listen, lady, I, I hope you notice I let you in the bathroom before me. And that was a very godly thing to do, and I'm a great representative for the kingdom of God, so let me tell you about the gospel now. That's what I was thinking in my weird little head. And the Lord spoke to me this, to my heart. Britt, you didn't do it for her, you did it for me. You did it as unto the Lord. By serving her, you expressed your love to me, as it says in Hebrews 6.10. Profound, wonderful. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And so through serving people, 
we worship the Lord. We express our love to the Lord. But we also do that which I sort of mentioned um, humorously in passing. We expand the kingdom. It gives us opportunities for the gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.19, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. Paul was going to humble himself to the point of slavery for people that he might win some of them to the gospel. He says it again in 1 Corinthians 10.33. He says, I do not seek my own profit, but the profit of many that they might be saved. You see, it was part of Paul's missionary strategy to serve others, to meet their needs, and he knew that therefore by doing, there would be a door open for the gospel. Understand that. That's why when we went to Mexico sometime last year, we took clothing and food and gifts. We began to meet their practical needs to serve them because it opens the door for the gospel. That's why when our team of high schoolers and junior hires went down to Costa Rica, they went down there as servants to build and to clean and to scour and to scrub and then to preach the gospel. Servanthood opens up doors for the kingdom of God. Christian Surfers International is doing amazing things, as I learned this week. They are on the um, cutting edge of uh, missionary efforts around the world. Many of them are seeking to reach unreached people groups, and they're going into areas like the Mentawe Islands, and they're discovering new islands where people have never been. There's uh, people running around in grass skirts, you know what I mean, and Ooga Booga and the whole nine yards. And they go there, and they just begin to serve those people, and they're surfers, so they do it through serving. They go there with surfboards, And they give these little kids surfboards. They teach them how to surf. They film them surfing. They set up a screen with a generator and they run via PowerPoint film of these kids surfing that day at their local spot. They teach them how to surf and they give them surf things and they leave. And then they come back a few months later and they repair their boards for them. They hold a contest for them because by now the kids are getting pretty good. And they give them prizes for the contest and they leave. And they go back a few months later. And only then they begin to share the gospel slowly. But you see, it happened through servanthood. By just blessing them. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And what has enabled them to do is to go into closed countries. You see, they're in places where evangelism is against Islam law. These are places, uh, many of them, uh, such as Morocco. I, I met with one missionary there from Morocco, where you can't go in as a missionary. And so he goes in as a servant and as a businessman. And he serves people and he shares the gospel that way. I met another guy in Bali. And uh, Bali is uh, the Hindu island in the midst of Indonesia, which is predominantly Islamic. And in Bali there, uh, evangelism is illegal. And so he's there as a missionary, but all he does is serve the kids and the people of the community. They've opened up a youth center and they come in and they've got all this fun stuff for them that they would never have otherwise and they hold surf contests and they teach them how to surf and they teach them English, so on and so forth. And he just got invited, this guy over in Bali with Christian Surfers International, he got called up by the local university and they said, will you please come to our university and teach our students English? You can teach them anything you want to teach them as long as it's English. So what do you think he's teaching them? He's going in with the word of God in a Hindu area there, in the university. And so servanthood opens up the door for gospels. It's amazing. It's wonderful. So true greatness and leadership is found in giving yourself in service to others. Now, let me just balance it for a minute and then we're over. I don't want anybody to think that this means you can't pursue your own life dreams or that you can't uh, have a job where you make money, or you can't do this and that or the other. It doesn't mean that at all. It simply means that in the midst of those things, you've got to be kingdom-minded. That God's kingdom has to be paramount over your kingdom. Some of you, God has blessed with an ability for business, or some other talent, or a gift for making money. God is not forbidding you from doing that. God gave you the ability to do that. Go do that to the glory of God and make yourself a servant through those gifts to the people around you. You understand? It doesn't forbid you from doing those things. It doesn't forbid you from pursuing dreams. It just means that God's kingdom priority and values have to guide those things. You understand that? God wants to bless you and he wants you to enjoy his creation. But if it stops with you, then it stops here on earth. 
In other words, if you're just greedy for your own kingdom and your own rewards here on earth, then that is the reward you have. And you'll still get to heaven if you're a Christian, but it may be very few rewards there. The rewards come through serving others with our talents and with our gifts. At the end of his life, General William Booth, who started the um, Salvation Army, before he died, sent a message to his co-laborers in the Salvation Army and had one word on it, others. That's all it said. That was the last thing he wanted to impart to those people that served with him, others. And I've told you before, from the Word of God, Christianity is about Jesus Christ and others. It's not about us. We're simply a vessel for his love, amen? The object of his love, but a vessel for his love. And when he's done with the vessel, it'll be broken and we'll go to heaven and we'll be with him. It was the essence of Christ's life. It is the essence of Christianity. And it's on my heart to say this in the closing moment. It is the essence of a biblical marriage. As I ministered to these 180 leaders from around the world this week, I made myself available for intercessory prayer for them. And I said, I especially have a heart to pray for people who are married and in ministry. And all week long, people were coming to me with their marriages just in a rough spot. And these are God's leaders around the world on the cutting edge of missionary work and evangelism. And their marriages were in shambles. Listen, there is no more powerful concept in the midst of your marriage than servanthood. Consider your spouse is more important than yourself and everything will be cool. Amen? God, we thank you for your word this morning. And uh, in theory and in your word, all of this sounds wonderful and it makes great sense to our redeemed hearts that we are to be servants, even as you said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. It makes sense in our hearts, I mean in our heads, but God, make application now. Apply it to our hearts as we press into you in this time of worship and prayer and in communion. Make application. God, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would reveal to each one of us areas where you're calling us to be servants. Areas where you are calling us to humble ourselves, to esteem others is more important. I know, Lord, that I didn't give any real practical application of how to serve others. I'm leaving that to you, God. By your Spirit, speak to us now as we seek you and press into you. How to apply your words to our lives. We want to be great in the kingdom of God for your glory. So teach us now. In Jesus' name, amen.